Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some wonderful guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing, integrative future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalienahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I speak with the wonderful Rich Summers, a sustainable butcher, a curer, teacher and consultant who has worked in the British meat industry for over 30 years and gained an appreciation of the finest quality British livestock and game, along with an admiration for those who dedicate their time to producing it. Drawing upon his experience as a butcher, charcutier, slaughterman and occasional stockman, he has developed a forensic knowledge of ethically farmed and humanely slaughtered livestock and the importance of how these factors influence meat quality and in turn a healthy, balanced human diet. A well-respected industry figure, Rich's extensive knowledge of whole carcass butchery enables him to impart complex academic and scientific processes, alongside sophisticated practical skills, to clients wishing to guarantee the very best eating quality and food safety standards in a sustainable way. Rich also consults, teaches and judges on a wide range of subjects, and he leads a team of specialists offering a world-class range of services aimed to produce healthier, ethical, commercially viable food systems, which you can check out at summersandco.uk. So Rich, it is a pleasure being on the show with you. I'm glad that we're getting to have this chat finally. Be looking forward to this one. Yeah, you too. So um, I'm going to kick off with the biggie that I like to open the conversation with. And that is, what do you think is going on in the global human psyche? What does that bring up for you, that question? Okay, an awful lot of things. I think um, I was really interested to hear the, the last time we spoke, we got an awful lot in common kind of authors, writers and, and, and that kind of thing and so on. And um, I've been listening to um, a Johnny Wilkinson podcast where he's speaking to Manda Scott, somebody I, I know you know very well. Yeah, I love Manda. <laughs> it's, it, she's incredible, just says everything a lot more eloquently than I could ever have done, but exactly what I want to say in a weird sort of a way. We're sort of hurtling towards the end of civilization as we know it at a huge rate of knots, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so... Um, toxic capitalism seems to have uh, taken hold, and uh, the thing that's really lacking is we need. Well, we need to look after the soil. It's the source of everything. Uh, we need to look after soil. Uh, we need a fairer distribution of wealth um, throughout the whole planet, and we need to look at restoring human health mm. through diet, more of, more of a natural diet. That's what needs addressing. But that's that's what I'm seeing globally. Just the big ones. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you know the thing is though, it's all. It, it's, it's just. I reckon it's really easy to solve. So let's come to that. But first, I want to bridge into that by touching on the theme that I'm very intrigued about for this season, which is that of integration. And what you've just described, as far as I can understand it, is 
a step change in how we relate to and approach human existence, planetary well-being, and that, of course, requires an integrated view of what flourishing and health looks like, starting with mm. the soil, because that's where, well, soils and waters, that's where all life comes from. So from your perspective, doing the work that you do, yeah. what does a healthy, integrated food system or ecosystem, depending on which you'd like to look at first, uh, what does that look like to you? A healthy food system, I think we could talk about about ethics and, and the term ethics or ethical means an awful lot of things to an awful lot of people. So ethical food production, to me, is something that works in harmony with nature. It replenishes nature. It's, it's regenerative. It has full respect for every species that's involved in it. So from the livestock production system, full respect for the animal. Um, the animal is treated with with uh, compassion and um, we do need to eat them to survive. Access to the best quality food should be available to all and at an affordable price, really. And everything really needs to be done from our perspective locally. Mm -hmm. We need shorter supply chains so that they're more profitable. Mm. And then from that, everything else flourishes. So that's that's kind of where I see everything coming back to. So it's every time we talk about an issue, you can trace it back to the soil and, and, and the way that that's the, the way that food's produced. Mm. And so then you're saying it's quite easy to fix. Please tell me, because there's me and a whole bunch of other people listening to this going, right, what do we do, Rich? Tell us. <laughs> so from your, yeah, from your line of work, what do you see working? What gives you a sense of hope for what we can change? Okay, well, I think the first thing we, we need to address is, I mean, it would be really easy to kind of go back to um, almost a sort of Aboriginal kind of relationship with the planet, kind of almost along the lines of traditional Native American relationship with the earth. Mm -hmm. So taking just what you need to survive, putting back and living in harmony with it. Now, I am a realist. I think that's too much of a jump, mm. to be honest, you know, and I think that we do have... I think it was Manda Scott actually that had that had that had brought up this this term. I believe it was toxic capitalism. Hmm. So everything has to justify itself by being profitable yeah. to somebody, you know. And I think food production is different. I think if you're always if you're constantly looking at the bottom line, and particularly in larger processing organisations that have that have shareholders. Hmm. And this term that I hear an awful lot about shareholder value, which seems to be kind of like, you know, that's that that is what we need to satisfy before we satisfy everything else. That needs to be addressed. But I think if you don't have too many shareholders or the or the shareholders that you do have actually either own what they're supplying. So smaller supply chains where you've got livestock producers, you've got cereal producers, you've got vegetable producers that are also involved in the selling of their own produce mm. is a lot more profitable. You are able to, on a regional basis, keep things an awful lot fresher and there's greater access from the local community to it. it, it that, that's kind of where we need to start, just there. And it's, it is helping build back things like market halls it's helping smaller abattoirs to survive it's you know i, I want to see good old-fashioned proper farmers markets mm. if we start there and help to champion 
those people with the right ethics, that's where we start. At the risk of saying, look, I'm not going to work for a bigger organisation, even though they're offering a better salary, because deep down I know that it's wrong. I think if we take, get some real integrity about who we're actually working for and what we're actually doing for a living side, I don't work for larger processes and I won't, you know, but then again, my primary driver naturally isn't, never has been currency. Hmm. I don't know really how to manage it. I don't really understand it, you know. I've always worked hard, but money's a secondary thing to me. It always has been naturally, you know. And food, the quality of food and who it gets to is primary importance, as long as that's in harmony, as I say, with the planet and nature. Mm. And it sounds to me, I mean, I think there's so there's so many layers that you've just outlined there which all interconnect. So one of them that really jumps out for me is is your point around what you value and for you currency not being the primary motivator that that there's something about living in a way that's true to your values with integrity and and i think what's interesting with a lot of the western research i've seen from you know more more affluent economically affluent countries younger generations well i guess they're expressing more expectations around companies doing good and being good and not just woke washing for virtue signaling. So there's, a, there's this kind of sense that there is a shift in what we value in companies and providers that previous generations haven't benefited from. And so I obviously don't want to generalise to all people because this is kind of research in bulk, but there's an interesting thing there about the social and cultural element, which I think also connects to education and to the fact that if we don't do something drastic now, and it can start off small, I mean, drastic doesn't have to be okay, you make a decision in urgency and off you go. But it does mean we have to think big and have a bold vision and then take actionable steps to get there. Um, Completely. And so actually on that on that point, let's talk about something which I know you know quite a lot about, which is regenerative farming. Mm. So this is something which a lot of people are talking about now finally, which is very exciting. We're seeing some interesting trials happening here. Can you tell us a bit about what it is, how long it takes to kind of work and what excites you about this particular area? Okay. Well, firstly, you know, I'm not from an agricultural background. However, I've worked really quite closely with with farmers and smaller producers. Um, but essentially, from my perspective, and, and I guess I've got a slightly different perspective in the fact that I haven't been conditioned in one way, shape or form by an agricultural college. Hmm. So I, I've just seen agriculture and, and food production primarily warts and all essentially now when you look at regenerative farming it does have a new term however when you actually look at the systems involved you could call them traditional mixed rotational farming systems interesting so we're going back to the time of john coke i believe in the 18th century you know we're going back to the work of Robert Bakewell, again, from the 18th century, so sort of agricultural pioneers. Hmm. There's a balance there to be had, though. I mean, we've got, the, we've got the agricultural revolution, which you could argue is a bad thing, as was the invention of the plough and tillage then from that and, and, and the, the damage it had on the planet. However, there are people that do need to be fed. And with a growing population, we need to be efficient in the way that we do that however a mixed farming system that involves 
natural fertilizing um, of the soil using livestock. So the field's working in rotation. One year they'll be growing a crop. The next year, after the crop's harvested, that ground will be left either uh, fallow, I believe the term is. The following year, it would then be grazed and fertilized. And then um, another year, something else sown and then, and then grown, but all in rotation. So a series of fields used in rotation. Mm. Now, from what I understand, this form of agriculture employed an awful lot of people. However, it was profitable. So we've now reached a situation where it's been industrialised to a point where you can have one operative sitting in a combine harvester processing fields and fields and Mm. fields, as far as the eye can see, of one particular crop. You know, so that's my understanding of, of regenerative agriculture. But there's an awful lot more, I think, there that is relevant for today. Obviously, not only the... Um, environmental benefit that those systems has but also in the fact that you're actually creating jobs you're also reconnecting human beings with nature putting their hands in the soil so you've got you've got that element of of connection but also if you're not sitting in the cab of a tractor for eight to 16 hours a day but you're actually working with a team of people you have that form of connection mm. which improves mental health greatly. So all of a sudden you've you've now got physical tasks which are keeping people fit. More connection with with the earth and with nature and with other human beings, which is which is improving mental health. You also access, because you're literally working with it day on day, to the very finest nutrient-dense food all of a sudden it's not difficult to go actually we've just answered a lot of the big problems yeah. <laughs> there you know so it's just yeah I mean what it is it's I mean I don't know what you call it um it's a nod to the past but looking to the future you know it, it is it is those sorts of systems but for the future and and the nice thing is once you get in in harmony with nature it's just it's like, I would say like surfing. I've never surfed, by the way. Um, <laughs> Me neither. I tried it once, didn't too, get very far. Too old. I would, yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, I, it's, it's, it, it's, I guess, a little bit like, like kind of surfing. You've, you, you find the wave, you get in harmony with nature and you just enjoy it. You look after it, you enjoy it, you know. Let's weave this in then to what you do on a day-to-day basis, um, what, what much of your work revolves around, because this is something that doesn't get spoken about very much. And that's sustainable butchery. Tell us what it is and how that works, because it's there's a connection here between what you do, the health of people, education, like all of these elements are connected. So, um, yeah, I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Sure. Well, I was aware of regenerative agriculture, I think, probably uh, seven years ago, something like that. And I found out what it was. And it became like an addiction. You wanted to know more about it. And it just, it just, there was an awful lot of it that resonated with me, connection to nature, which has always been a thing in me. Um, and I thought, well, you know, how do I, how do I get involved? I don't want to be just buying a bag for life or signing up for a Riverford veg box. I want to do something here. So, you know, I've got a particular skill set here. And I thought, right, what do I do? So let me look at the elements of it. What can I bring to this? And I thought, well, okay, I'm pretty good, pretty good with meat. 
I am traditionally skilled, but I've also taught myself a lot of other traditional skills. And I thought, okay, so if I can, if I can return more revenue for a carcass of beef, pork, lamb, venison, whatever it be, and help to build shorter supply chains, i.e., well, I guess what we call direct sales, so um, on-farm shops, butcher shops, mm. that's kind of where I am with it. Uh, what that basically means is um, if I was a farmer rearing a carcass of beef, from the calf being born to what we call point of slaughter, when the animal's ready and fit to go to the abattoir, that's going to cost about £1,000 to do that. If you sell it to a processor in the UK at decent market price, you're going to get paid just over £1,600, which means that you've made £600. Now, if you were to send the carcass away to an abattoir, that abattoir then took it to a specialist cutting plant that would cut and pack it into uh, retail-friendly packages, price it up for you, put a label on it, and you sold it directly to the consumer. After costs, um, you would be able to generate somewhere in the region of uh, just over, say, around about sort of £3,000. So after costs, about £1,600. Yeah, okay. So you've more than doubled your money there. Mm. Now, taking that, Taking that model forwards, if you were to turn less lesser popular bit, so this is this this is balancing your carcass. So basically, there's a lot of mince on a carcass, a beef, and it's not massively popular in the UK because we've we've lost connection with cooking and all that sort of a thing. We've industrialised food food production. If you were to take lesser desirable bits of that carcass, and you were again to send an animal to the abattoir, and you were to produce a range of charcuterie and ready meals and bone broth and cooking fat um, you would be able to generate a revenue of close to eight thousand pounds now if you pay somebody to do that for you after costs you are looking uh, at returning somewhere in the region of three and a half thousand pounds so mm. one end of the spectrum you earn 600 pounds by losing that that carcass of beef that's been produced by an animal that you've lovingly cared for all of its life, mm. um, sent it into a larger processor and just get lost in the whole of that system. But if you were to take some care and attention, send it to somewhere that, that could process that for you without charging the earth, mm. so still still keeping all of these products accessible to everybody, after costs, you can now generate £3,500. So I thought, okay, let, let's see if we can, we can push on with that. So I decided that I wasn't going to work with anybody that I didn't like. <laughs> um, so for the last five years or so, because it, it wasn't difficult for me to stop chasing the dollar because I never understood it, <laughs> really never understood money, essentially. It, it isn't about that for me. I prefer to sleep at night, right? Okay, so for the past five years or so, you could call it a consultancy business. However, it's difficult to describe. Um I think everything in terms of kind of capitalism, if you like, and uh, everything that that is involved with capitalism, essentially marketing, it needs a hook or a tag or a thing mm. to be pigeonholed, to be called a thing. <laughs> Every client that I've had is slightly different, you know. Some of them are very wealthy life changes that have earned an awful lot of money in, in another industry and want to offset the guilt a little bit, mm. you know. 
um, and and start to do this. Others are just farmers and producers that just want to do the right thing, and have always wanted to do the right thing. You know, so this is this is growing gradually. Okay, so in order to subsidise it and and pay the bills, I'll either teach skills in food colleges or clients that I've had and helped set up because of the shortage of skilled operatives in our sector. I arranged to do a couple of days actual physical cutting of carcasses and turning them into product for them. I speak at a few events here and there. I do some demonstrations and so on, but all with the same values. So all for the right people, essentially. Mm. And so one of the things I think that we have to kind of talk about, and especially because it's a very hotly debated subject, which I think it needs to be actually, uh, is this question around ethics, nutrition and sustainability. And so, for instance, in the like in the last year alone, I've seen several books come out exploring this topic. So Sacred Cow, The Case for Better Meat, Why Well-Raised Meat is Good for You and Good for the Planet by Diana Rogers and Rob Wolf. I saw an interview between them and Joe Rogan. I know Joe Rogan is a bit of an acquired taste, but they had some really interesting things to say. And then another one uh, by Rob Percival, who was interviewed also by Amanda Scott on Accidental Gods. And his book is called The Meat Paradox, Eating, Empathy and the Future of Meat. And so they both take different perspectives. So the latter book actually even includes perhaps of a more metaphysical shamanic perspective, which is perhaps surprising to hear. But of course, you know that many indigenous cultures do eat meat and fish, but their relationship to those beings is very different to the way in which our relationship has become. So many of these people are looking at different aspects of the issues involved in eating meat. And given that it means that we're taking the life of another being, at least for now, until we end up with, you know, lab-grown meats, which are probably going to happen at some point, Uh, It does mean taking a life and it means in some cases causing quite a lot of suffering. Mm. So I'm I'm curious to ask, and I am someone who does eat meat. I predominantly eat organic meat, locally sourced. I don't eat veal or small animals particularly. I, I like to try and at least make sure that the animal has had a longer life and it's from farms around the region. But I mean, I know vegans listening to that will be like, well, that's like, not okay. So th- this is going to raise a lot of questions. But I'd like to hear what's your take on our relationships with animals, especially as a butcher? How do you interact with their life, their death, their suffering? Um, yeah, how do, you, how do you begin to dig into that? Well, you know, from, from the reading that I've done um, over the past, again, five or six years, we're all organisms or bunches of kind of cells that have become kind of, I guess you could argue, more advanced organisms. And an organism survives by feeding on another organism in some way, shape or form, whether it is a microorganism in the form of uh, bacteria, um, fungi, everything feeds on something else. Mm. Okay. Now, if we were to look at the potential suffering of an animal, let's say it's a bovine animal, it could be could be a bison, could be a domesticated cow, whatever it is. In terms of suffering, one of my earliest memories, I think, as being a child was being fascinated by David Attenborough programmes, mm. even before I could speak. And the images that we used to have 
back then were a lot more graphic, actually, than what's on the TV now. So you would see animals, injured animals, older animals, eaten alive. That's what it was. They were, eat, they were eaten alive. So uh, no anaesthetic, just eaten alive, you know, very, very slowly. Now, from my experience working as um, a lairidgeman in an abattoir, working as a slaughterman as well, every animal that I processed, that I killed, I stunned first, either through electrolethal, captive bolt, or percussion stunning. The animal was then bled uh, in a very short space of time between, you know, around about the 15 seconds was all it was. So the animal was insensible to pain. Now, in terms of stress for that animal, whether you're an animal lover um, or whether you purely work as a slaughter person, it isn't within your interests to agitate or stress that animal in any way. These animals are very large, powerful things. So pigs are dangerous. Being in a very small space with best part of a ton of, um, of beef animal is a very uncomfortable place to be. If you're agitating that animal in that, in that small space, the chances of you getting hurt are an awful lot greater. Okay. So I'm not wanting to stress this. I want, in fact, I want, I want the opposite mm. to happen. Now, on the flip side of that, the calmer the animal is, the better the meat quality is as well. Hmm. Okay, so animal welfare, meat quality, two two sides of the same coin, you know, essentially. So, from my perspective, if we're talking about sentient beings, which covers an awful lot of things these these days, but certainly larger mammals or mammals in general, or even birds that, that we're going to eat that are domesticated, they're anaesthetized. There's no scarcity of food. They're looked after, they're medicated when they need to be, um, and they are moved 99.999% of the time in a compassionate, ethical manner to a unit which will dispatch the animal with compassion and with, and with empathy. That's my personal experience with it. From the perspective of game, which is a different thing, there is an awful lot less... Um, in the way of potential suffering as the animal, particularly from the from the point of view of deer stalking, a headshot or a high neck shot will kill the animal outright. Wow. So it will be exhibiting its natural range of behaviour one minute, the next minute its lights are out without even knowing, without changing its environment so that the animal hasn't been moved. So the distress of the animal is minimal. Mm. That's my perspective on it. Now, from the perspective of producing plant protein, depending on how you're doing it, as soon as you look at tillage, as soon as you put a plough in the earth, there's a lot of things that die, mm. an awful lot of things that die. So mycorrhizal fungi, the microorganisms that, inhabit that mycorrhizal highway the connection to you know, worms bugs voles anything that lives ground nesting birds anything that lives on that patch of land that you're cultivating to grow non-animal produce in will die mm. there's there's no getting away from that so 
it is impossible as a species to live without something dying for us to benefit from it. Mm. And so maybe that's one of the core things, because I think we've become... Because there is the, the one question, which is the suffering and the stress and the cruelty that can happen and does happen in industrial models. Mm. But then the other side is our relationship to death and, you know, how much we are willing to reconnect with it and to actually acknowledge that death and life are very closely linked within, you know, a thriving ecosystem and encountering our own death, thinking about our own death uh, is something that in the West we're very uh, unwilling to do on a day-to-day basis these days. Mm. Do you think there's something there around maybe like a cultural conversation that needs to happen around that? I do. I think I was I was listening to another podcast um, with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. I can't remember the name of the guest that he had on, and they were talking about death in general, I think it was off off the back of COVID and the fear, the fear of death. And the guest had said to Dr. Chatterjee, I think it's a little bit more than that. I feel that if people had contributed more to the planet hmm. and were more concerned about what they were leaving, they would be happy to die. Hmm. The fact that their lives have consisted of chasing goods and currency that they don't really need, but they're told that they constantly do, or a social status that they need to attain to be successful, which Mm. means sod all, essentially. (laughs) If they were more focused on, you know, I think think I'd said it to you in our last conversation, I'm really taken with... A quote. I'm not quite sure how it goes, but um, it's about people planting trees under the shade of which they'll never sit. Mm, you know, it's that mm. next generation. If you feel that you've done all you can to leave the place better for the next generation, you'd be happy to shuffle off, safe in the knowledge that you've done your bit and you were you were you were becoming fertilizer to improve that that the whole thing even more. You know, <laughs> um, but I think yeah, death is. I think we do need a conversation about that. I not into conspiracy theories, but you don't need to scratch too far below the surface to look at the vegan agenda and look at the largest independent landowner of agricultural land in the US and who that guy's owned by. Hmm. And then the fact that that larger company owns significant shares in businesses that profit from not only pharmaceuticals but also agri-fertilizers as well you know mm. if, if people want to read more into this which i definitely would love to where can we look it's difficult to say i'm not i'm not the biggest one on study and let me just i'll tell you what i will what i was reading okay the other day it was basically about Mega corporations, right? Mm. Okay, now there's a book, I believe, called Monopoly, Who Owns the World, by a guy called Tim, and I'm not quite sure how to, how to pronounce the surname, G-I-E-L-E-N, right? Okay, so basically looking into um, the likes of BlackRock and Vanguard, mm-hmm. who they own, and you could, you could, if you had a, a cynical mind, say, right, okay, 
Large corporations would like to control global food supply by vilifying smaller farms. You know, you've only got to look at the work of Vandana Shiva and what she's saying currently, what, what's going on in, in India and so on, right? Okay, so large corporations want to control seed. If you control seed, particularly if it's genetically modified, you also control uh, the other substances that are that, that are required in being able to grow that, i.e. fertilisers, etc., etc. But also if you are keeping people functioning instead of looking at their health, you can you're actually kind of willingly making a meal but if you think about it you've got a pharmaceutical company so you've got you've got the kit to kind of to make them well enough to kind of press the buttons and and um get them to do kind of menial jobs just keep them alive enough for that this is so dystopic it's so it's it's so i know right yeah but the thing is right and it, it it's like everything else this kind of I've been reading a lot about the law of attraction now, and it's I'd, it's difficult to know when to stop saying this because I think people need to be aware of it, right? But when you look at that, that's a positive thing. So, again, an awful lot of these terms thrown about, but the 1% who kind of are these large financial institutions are 1%. Now, the 99%, do the work, right? All, you, all you've got to say is like, we're growing food here, guys. You know, this is our food to grow for us. If you want some, then great, come and get it. But you've got to be, you've got to have it on our terms. So, without labour, nothing functions. Without labour, without people working the earth in agriculture, in in the food processing industry, nothing works nothing functions without people that are specifically going to look after the soil because we've moved away from being hunter gatherers as we settle down to kind of I guess what you call ag- agriculture in the neolithic things have changed it didn't happen until european settlers um landed on the american continent it didn't happen until then but it's been happening for a while so the only way to kind of truly address the balance would be to take on more of a, a Native American approach to food. and Like more of an indigenous perspective. Absolutely. But basically, there aren't many people around, and I'm going to sound a little bit conceited, and I don't mean, I don't mean it to sound like that, but I'm quite happy to kill it, cook it, eat it. And I'm quite happy to do that because I'm fortunate enough to have the skill set to be able to do that and feed people I like. That's fine. Um, the people I don't like, I won't feed. It's as simple as that, right? Okay. I'm moving to your village. <laughs> Do it. Do it. We'd love to have you here. You know, it's great. You know, and I just, I'm just, you know, I. Without everybody having those skills, we'll struggle to eat. So what what we have got to say is right. Lots of people need feeding. There are very few people. I think it's between one and two percent of people in the UK that actually work in agriculture. That's of the total population. Wow. So we need to get to a point where we go, okay, so where is this cutoff point? Where can we get to a point where we are readdressing the damage that's done to the planet and keeping people healthy and making stuff affordable and doing it efficiently enough that it is cost effective so that people can access it a lot bit 
more easily. So I want you to tell us a little bit about the Academy because that addresses quite a lot of these systemic issues that we need to be able to transform. Um, and then I want to ask you a couple of extra questions to wrap up. But tell us what your Academy is and why it's important, how it works. Okay. It's a concept which has been on the back burner for probably 12 years. And um, the idea is that we have um, an academy, a site, a processing unit, whatever you wanted to call it, which aids direct sales and helps to support smaller direct supply chains. Mm -hmm. So basically, if you were a farmer uh, and you were producing fantastic livestock and you wanted to sell that directly, the chances are you do a fantastic job of what you're doing, but you are not going to be great as a butcher or you wouldn't have the facilities to be able to process carcasses. Now, the industry has been de-skilled uh, over the last 50 years. So the butchery industry, the meat the meat industry has been de-skilled over the last 25 years. It's been industrialized to a point where you have one operative doing one task mm in a whole process. Now, with this renaissance of people wanting to buy better quality meat from, from these farms, we've gotten to a point where pe people have gone, right, we don't want this rubbish any anymore. We want good stuff. And we've, we've turned around and gone, yeah, that's great. But, you know, uh, supermarkets are in control now. 80% of everything consumed in, in the UK is, is bought from supermarket. Um, there ain't the butchers about any anymore. The FE colleges, technical colleges, uh, tend largely to be more about bums on seats. So the most popular trades or occupations tend to get more funding, and butchery is not one of them. So a technical college don't want to be spending money on a very expensive commodity to train their students on if there isn't an outlet for it. So the idea is, in its purest sense, to build a butchery academy or a college which would primarily process carcasses of beef for farmers for them to have back to sell on. Now, the more you look at that, the more opportunity there is for an awful lot more people there. So the idea would be to locate this in, uh, in, a, in an, an urban environment where we could reconnect people, again, with food. This particular academy would also train students up to a point where they had a much greater understanding of meat technology and meat science, a lot more knowledge of products that are more regularly made on the continent. I'm talking about kind of, you know, salamis, chorizos, mm. Iberico-style hands, those, those, those sorts of products. But also, once they've had that level of training they are more highly skilled if they're more highly skilled they command a better a better rate of pay the better rate of pay that they're getting as they are living their everyday lives in their community that's where they're spending their money so then it starts to regenerate the rest of the area mm -hmm. the unit would also have concessions on so we would be able to not only have a college butcher shop there that would function as a normal butcher shop and a deli section we would also be leasing out space to a local greengrocer like a market hall a local baker etc um, a real focus on having somewhere to come and eat now because we've reduced or we've we've 
we've shortened that, that supply chain, it does mean that we can keep prices down a little bit more, make it more accessible to an awful lot more people. Mm. Now, there are people that are really quite enthusiastic about this. There are a lot of revenue streams going in as well. So we, we would be looking into tapping into uh, the government levy for apprenticeships as well. We would be looking to run weekend courses for interested amateurs, uh, all manner of things. There's quite a bit more detail um, on the Groundswell presentation that I did. It's been widely agreed that this is the way forward. We've, We've costed it. We've done an awful lot of work on it. It's a package that's kind of ready to go. What What we're looking for are are people to fund it. So if people want to get involved and help support this project, what are some ways they can do that? Get in, in touch with us uh, would be the first thing. Um, I'm going to say probably wait until uh, we've got this presentation ready. So there are several, shall we say, big hitters in the regenerative farming community that are right behind this. Um, we want to get our offering right we will be taking this out um, in the new year because kind of historically in Britain, um, anything to do with meat, November onwards, nobody wants to know you until after Christmas, <laughs> really. So uh, we're going to be looking to run these presentations in front of larger ethical farming or meat processing companies just to see uh, how they feel about chucking a few quid in and funding this. Um, so um, yeah please get in touch with me you can drop me a line um, on the website but um, trying to keep a powder dry a little bit more until we're we're really sure that we've got something productized mm, sure. uh, to go with but that's uh, what we're looking to do we want to do this regionally as well this is so exciting and then so if people want to learn more about your work and keep in touch about this as and when it's ready to be launched into the world Where's the best place for people to find you? You can get me on it on Instagram normally. It's the Free Range Butcher. I'm currently struggling to get access to that. My my IT <laughs> oh, no. ability is not is, is, isn't great. That's another story. It, it it will be back on, or you can get me through the website and and the email. So there's a, a website there. It's so it's uh, summersandco.uk. Drop me a line there, or just give me a buzz. Um, no problem at all. Just give me a buzz. Wonderful. But I'm I'm looking to kind of get involved with as many people as possible. As you can probably tell, kind of presenting and being sort of media friendly is not my main strength. I'm I'm here for the heavy lifting. Essentially, it's just that nobody uh, seems to want to step up and um, and take this idea forward. So I, this is this is what I'm yet currently doing. People out there yet. do. You just need to find them, and we're going to help you do it. <laughs> well, that would be incredible. Yeah. Well, Rich, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You too. It's been great to see you again. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and a review as it helps to reach new ears. For more information, you can visit natalinahyde.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. You can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at natalinahyde. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.